0: Hello, everyone. This is Artemis with the Uncivilized podcast. Today, we have Dr. Shannon Eplett, professor of theater and Indigenous studies at Illinois State University. Dr. Eplett, how are you doing? Good. Good. It's great to be here. Ani boju Shannon
1: bawating dojaba. And what I just did is introduce myself in Anishinaabe Moin. So uh, my name is Shannon Eplett. Uh, I am a member of the Sault Saint Marie Tribe of Chippewa Indians, and I'm happy to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm happy to have you on. Uh, so, I guess the first, the first big question is, who is Dr. Epplett, and what work or ideas were and are important to his development?
1: Okay. Well, my my background, my PhD is in theater history, and I lived and worked in Chicago theater for about 15 years. And my uh, my research, my writing is really about the history of Chicago's off loop theater scene. So that's that's one thing. So I do, you know, straight up theater history. I look at uh, Chicago's theater history through a sociological lens of this theater scene really only started in 1969. It blew up fast and big. It produced Steppenwolf, John Malkovich. I mean, some of the biggest ideas and actors and writers in American theater today. And it's a vital, really interesting scene. And I talk about how and why it works and how it can only happen in Chicago. So that's part of what I do. The other part of it is, um, in graduate school. I mean, I've, I've always been Native American,
0: right? So,
1: and I, like I said, I'm a member of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians and our tribe just like over the fourth celebrated its 50th anniversary of federal recognition. So I am older than the tribe itself as a political entity, but, um, The way it was always, the way it was always put to me as a kid is grandpa's Indian, not we're Indian or you're Indian too. He's Indian. It's sort of the rest of us are not. And so I always knew this. It wasn't a secret. Um, But being Indian in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan was not a desirable thing to be. And that's the world he grew up in. And his grandmother they refer to as the squaw, which is, you know, a problematic term, but she was the Indian. You know, she spoke the language and made moccasins for her grandchildren, tanned deer hide in the backyard. That was the story they all seemed really embarrassed about. Um, but she kept some of the traditions in the language. And that was lost because they lived at a time where if you're too Indian, your kids are going to be taken away and put in school, in a boarding school. And, you know. They had a white last name, and my grandfather had blue eyes and curly hair and didn't look very Indian, and that was a good thing. And thinking through my family history, there was always a real emphasis on, you know, make sure the lawn is mowed. What will the neighbors think? We don't want them to think we're the damn Indians, Um, because they had neighbors, grandparents had neighbors who were damn Indians, you know, had rusty car parts in the yard, and an adult son with a drinking problem that was arrested all the time. So they never wanted to be mistaken for that. So there was this pressure to not be that kind of Indian, right, or be Indian at all. And um, like I said, my tribe was federally recognized in the early 70s. And in the early 80s, my grandfather got his Indian card, got his tribal membership, and he Probably did that for, you know, there were certain benefits like healthcare, care, fishing licenses. Actually, I think that was the way in for him. Um, so he got his card. And then a few years later, like my mom and her brother, my uncle got theirs and then my me and my cousins. So I got my Indian card, my tribal membership, maybe my last year of college. Um, and my family, when they first got their cards, they were kind of into it, you know, and then just sort of petered out like you had to renew them periodically or vote in tribal elections I don't think anyone was doing that but me and it's like I want to know more about this like um so I got into learning more about you know the native past in my of my tribe of uh my family so um so you learn more you read more you know um in grad school, I came to ISU as a grad student in 2009 to get my master's in theater. And it was at that point that I kind of realized, like, wow, there, there's not many Native people with PhDs, <laughs> with graduate degrees, or that do what I do. And other people found that really interesting. Um, so it's like, okay, well, I can sort of foreground more of, foreground that more, I guess, in uh, the way I present myself. So um, I went to, I finished my, my, um, excuse me, I finished my master's at ISU. That's a two-year degree. And then I was, I didn't initially come to grad school thinking I wanted to get a PhD. My goal initially was to get a master's and like teach at a community college. But uh, at the time, it's like, well, why don't you look at PhD programs? Just, you know, explore, see what you get. Um, you don't have to go. So I did, and I got several great offers, and the best one was from University of Illinois, down the road. Um, and I got a scholarship for or a fellowship for being Native American because as you may know, <laughs> as you all may know, U of I has a very problematic mascot and a, you know, questionable tr- uh, history of dealing with Native Americans, especially around that topic. So I got the best uh, offer at U of I. So that's where I went. And I went to U of I. um, I had gone to a high school. I grew up in Michigan. Um, I'd gone to a high school that had a Native American mascot that's very much in the vein of Chief Ilanowek. And I grew up with that. And that was just normalized. Like that was the only representation of a Native person that I had. And I grew up having no problem with it because you don't know any differently. And then, especially being at U of I, I was very conscious, really for the first time, I was very conscious of being Native American and feeling othered. I don't look, you know, I don't look Native. You get, you know, I'm pretty light-skinned and, you know, um, brown hair and brown eyes. But, uh, you know, people don't often read me as Native at first. So, but I was very conscious of being Native and more than once because I don't look native people would I would I got into that conversation of well I don't think the the mascot's all that bad I don't know what these Indians are upset about so <laughs> <laughs> like um and I was teaching um I would always I was uh, dur- as a, when I was a grad student I was teaching a speech you know, public speaking class you know this was sort of part of my fellowship or my um Assistantship was teaching these classes. And I would always start the class by telling people, you know, I'm Native American, just my background, you know, I'm from Michigan, I'm Native, blah, blah, whatever. It was like in there with all the other stuff you sort of tell students on the first day. And then one year, um, U of I does a spring um, unofficial, right? The unofficial spring break party, which is a big bar day drunken thing. One mm-hmm. of the bars made a t shirt with the chief on it that said, What do you mean I have to stand in line? I have a reservation. And like students would show up in my class wearing a shirt and or other, you know, chief wear. Um, I did a sample speech for them because one of the requirements of that class was they had to do a a speech on a controversial topic. So I did a sample for them on native American mascots and representation and whatever about why they're destructive and why they're bad. And so it's not like they didn't know, but they still show up. So in this, the content for this sample speech that I did. Um, and you, uh, the town of Pekin, Illinois. Okay, so I go through all the um, problematic mascot studies and why this is destructive with Native Americans. And really, Native Americans are the one minority that is primarily used as a sports team mascot. But there are others. And one of them is from Pekin, Illinois. And um, they used to be the Pekin Chinks. And so I, and I had, you know, and it was, I think they only got rid of Mm -hmm. that maybe in the late seventies. It's not been gone all that long. So I would show this imagery. I mean, their mascot was a person with slanty eyes and a coolie hat. I mean, total stereotype. And I had several Asian and Asian American students in my class and they saw, I'm showing these images and they would gasp, you know, it's like, like, how could they do that? It's like, it's the same thing (laughs) Like with the cheese. It's the same damn thing. How do you think I feel when I see that or any Native person sees that? You know, you don't honor your ancestors or honor somebody by dressing up like them and dancing around a (laughs) halftime. Like, it's not an honor. So, um, okay, so throughout grad school, my research focused on theater history. As a sideline and as a performing artist, I started to explore um, Native Using native ideas and topics in the theater work that I do. So, then I come to ISU and I got very involved in, you know, diversity equity efforts. I started teaching at ISU full time in 2019, when I think that year the um, anti-black ISU protests happened. It was a little ahead of George Floyd, and then with 2020 it really blew up. Um, I was also involved in. Um, a faculty group about indigenous representation, indigenous advocacy, and then Tribe at ISU started, and I was involved with that. And I realized, I mean, I mean, realized, I, I knew it wasn't like I didn't know this because I'd been a student at ISU, but there is nothing for Native students there. There is no recruitment, and there are no services. There is no um, cultural support until Tribe came along, really. So um, I really made it a focus of the uh, service work I was doing at ISU was native representation.
0: Yeah. So let me let me follow up a little bit with that. So you, you're obvious, the the importance of representation. It, it holds something for you. Um, and so does this obviously applies to your role as an uh, as an academic and in the arts. Does this apply specifically in some way to the lack of? Yeah, how would I phrase this? So historically indigenous or even non-white people have been represented, written, represented and even acted by white people, right? So what is the role of representation of, in this case, indigenous people by non-indigenous people, you know, like in movies or in theater when someone writes indigenous characters or anything like that? Um, What what does that look like? Well,
1: what does it look like when I see non-native people playing native characters or writing writing native stories? Um, it's it's upsetting and it's false usually. A, a lot of times it is. The other thing that's complicated is often it's well meaning, mm-hmm. right? It's they're trying their best or they think they're honoring, right? At best, that's what they believe they're doing. But you're not getting a true picture. I mean, if you want to know something, go to the source. We we don't. Um, I I've taught a a course a year or so ago and minority representation on the american stage and it was really a history kind of an overview of how african americans go from being you know represented by white people in blackface performances in these minstrel shows that are clown shows that are making fun of them that are completely racist to you know you know to where we are today um you know that evolution, and it's true of other minorities, too. And I did this, you know, so we start with the um, African Americans in that class, and then I sort of branch out in the story of how Native Americans and you know, Latinx people, I, I tried to incorporate queer representation, but that's such a big topic. it was hard to fit into the course. Um, but usually it goes from parody to making fun of or presenting as the villain or the outsider you know, white people presenting minorities, whether it's Indians or not, into, you know, people, minorities taking control of their own representation. And I think with Native Americans, that is only very recently, like since the 1990s, been able to happen in mainstream media, in mainstream, you know, film and TV. And with um, Reservation Dogs, the TV series that actually inspired a class that I've been teaching that's been very successful of, Native people telling their own stories um, their own way. And the beautiful thing about that show and and other films and work that I cover in that class too is, you know, they're just telling good stories. And if it's good, it's relatable to anybody. You don't need to be Indian to understand reservation dogs. Um, When I teach in that class, when we start to get into reservation dogs, most students... Uh, The first few times I taught it, most of them had not heard of it, hadn't heard of the series. But I said, well, who's from a small town? Or who's from a tight-knit community? (laughs) And, you know, like, three-quarters of the class will raise their hand. It's like, you'll get it, right? It's just about teenagers growing up, and they happen to be Native. And they happen to live on a reservation. But if you're from a small town,
0: it's going to make a whole lot of sense. So. Yeah. Yeah. I know, you know, reservation dog or res dogs is, is, is huge. I um, guess we've had on before Malatha, him and I have watched that show before. Yeah. And it's also one of those, like use. it has that universal appeal to, where I shouldn't say universal, but it has a broad appeal yeah. to people of the com- the coming of age in a rural area that they want to, es- they want to escape. But there's also in that a specific application to someone, perhaps that's indigenous people, or in some cases, perhaps women. Or or in some of the characters, you know, victims of neglect, right? There's aspects of it that can apply specifically to certain people of certain backgrounds or to a broader community of people, which I actually find really interesting. It's not tokenizing. So how much of that is because it's written by Indigenous people and not written about Indigenous people, if that made sense? I think um, Sterling
1: Harjo and the people that write that show are from that... Most of them are from that world um, mm-hmm. of you know, the reservation, they're from Oklahoma. Uh, most of them, I don't know how they, I can't say how they met exactly, but before reservation dogs, there was, uh, the 1491s, which were sort of a sketch comedy group. It was all guys. Um, but, uh, there were about five of them. Sterling Harjo was one of them. Dallas Goldtooth, um, Bobby Wilson, Uh, Ryan Redcorn, I think I'm leaving somebody, McGizzy Personnel were the others. They started, and my guess is they probably met in college or soon after or maybe when they were trying to start their careers. But um, they got together and started making YouTube videos, online stuff, sketch comedy about being native because nobody would hire them. They weren't getting hired as writers. They weren't getting cast in anything. They weren't working. There was no place for them, so they made their own. And they were able to do that because of social media, Um, and eventually, you know, um, Taika Waititi, uh, the uh, you know director producer, gave them a shot, and he's the reason that Reservation Dogs got made. Um, But he gave them he made uh, he made space for them, and so Reservation Dogs as a series took off. um, And what I love about it is they are the the. Um, Oh, Devery Jacobs, one of the actresses who's one of the lead characters is very interested in being a writer, producer. She's a very driven person and she is directing episodes. She's starting to like support other, you know, moving out professionally to further that. So not only um, it perpetuates itself, right? It's um, one sort of generation of artists encouraging the next. So when it's native people telling their own stories, it's true it's meaningful, and you're going to get mm-hmm. a different perspective. With with Reservation Dogs, they're, they are from a different tribal culture than mine. It's very, un, you know, it's a very, um, I'm Anishinaabe where, you know, we live in the north Woods. Um So there are cultural things I don't always get in that show, and I have to, like, Google it. Like, why did they, you know, like, what is it with the owls, you know? Right. Like, who's the deer lady? I don't know right, what that is. Right, right. But that, I love that, you know, it's, it's a different culture that exists right here in the U S you know, we kind of think we have one monolithic culture and it's like, there are 570 some, you know, I don't even know. That's like the federal number of federally recognized tribes, but every tribe has its own culture. And even in, you know, my tribe Mm -hmm. Anishinaabe, there are
0: differences from one, you know, community to the
1: next. So,
0: yeah, I find it interesting though. Um and this is just me and some of the spaces I'm in is this is particularly of like certain types of activists. Typically I've only seen it among like the white savior type of activist, but I'm sure it's among other groups is they love talking about how they like that show. Like out of their way, they, uh, they say and I'm like, Oh, that's so cringy. Like, it's so like, I get it. Like you want to seem cool and like an ally. um, and you know obviously this shows for everyone this idea that you know oh you can't watch it or enjoy or reference it because you're not indigenous or something i'm not yeah. getting at that at all but it's weird how some people they kind of grab onto it for reasons i think they probably shouldn't be grabbing onto it almost like for diversity or like ally points almost you know yeah, what i mean i mean is um
1: yeah i have i have taught the scotin meme as, in my classes which is kind of fun i mean <laughs> What I like about one of the points I make is it sounds like it's a native word and it's not, you know, it's just let's go then and let's do this. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't really know that native people came up with that first. Right. Um, But it got popularized with the meme of a, you know, drunk Indian. Um, And when I teach this, I go into the story of the guy in that in the meme originally, Purnell Badarm who, you know, died, I think, about 2015 or so from alcoholism. You know, really, it, it, the meme started, you know, it was a picture of this drunk Indian with his fists up, you know, in a parking lot and the word Skoden, and it's really making fun of the guy. But then it became, um, came to mean a lot more. And you see it, you know, spray painted on walls and it's in the background of, uh, and they say it in, in Reservation Dogs, it shows up in other native sources too. Um, so as much as people like Reservation Dogs, there was another series, Rutherford Falls, that only got, I think, two seasons and it deserved a lot more. And I tried to I wanted to sort of like use that as a counterbalance to Reservation Dogs because it's um, set in upstate New York. So it's sort of based. It's not specifically, you know, they kind of make up a tribe, but it's, you know, a, a Mohawk based culture. Um And it equally covers, you know, it's a small town with a reservation and a casino, and the Indians are making all the money. This is, like, very much like Sault Ste. Marie, my tribe, where it's this sort of dying white town, and then the Indians got gaming, and suddenly they run everything now. But um, it kind of equally tells the story of the Native community and the white community trying to hold on to this history and trying to sort of negotiate how do we... Coexist, you know, given everything, um, and it has a female lead character, and she's kind of a misfit in her own community. She's native, and there is her counterpart, who's a sort of privileged white guy that is also kind of a misfit. And um, and there was an episode; there were two episodes. One was titled Skoden, and the other was titled "Studis." And what the show did really brilliantly in the first season was it set it up such that the white male character came to question his own identity. He found out he was adopted, and suddenly he was not really a member of this prestigious family. And there is, um, in Native circles, there is a lot of identity policing that goes on, I mean, first externally, but also it happens internally, too. Um, The idea of, like, being disenrolled or pretendians. I mean, all of this. So, right. um, yeah, it's... What I, lo- what I loved about Rutherford Falls was they made that make sense to white people made, made that questioning your own identity, not being yourself enough or the right way. Um, they put it in terms that a white male protagonist could experience it. So I thought that was brilliant. <laughs> Sorry. I, I ramble. I apologize.
0: No, 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 you're good. But I think that's pretty typical for a theater major in my experience, but, Oh, uh... oh no, you didn't. <laughs> um, so in my experience, and we've had some people on this podcast that have spoken about this, uh, white, non-white from various backgrounds, is they aren't all that interested in representation, yeah. uh, whether that's in artwork, it's in the private or public sector. They're like, oh, that just like dangling a carrot in front of us so We're not concerned about XYZ issues or liberation or whatever it is that they're interested in. So how do you approach those? Like, have you had experience with those conversations or do you have thoughts about when people are like, oh, representation doesn't matter to me. I'm interested in, you know, whatever their conception of what a good life is or or, or assistance is or whatever.
1: Well, with, um, you know, good art speaks to everybody, right? Good art, art is about the human experience and it's universal and something, um, something that tells the truth, um, something that tells the human truth is undeniable. I think that is Maya Angelou may have said that first and better. But um, what I like about uh, reservation dogs and other some of the other you know art that I sort of present in my classes is it tells something universal and emotional and true and undeniable. Um, a few when I was still a PhD student um, at U of I, I was part of the Newberry Consortium of American Indian Studies, which was a summer fellowship program in Chicago at the Newberry Library. It brought together uh, Native grad students from lots of different fields for sort of a summer seminar at the library. And at the end of it, we all you know, presented our stuff. And most of the students there were in fields like history and sociology and legal studies, um, things like that. And there was, I was in theater and there was another student in the program who was a visual artist. And we kind of felt like the odd people out because our idea of research and process and, you know, what can be done and told with these materials we're working with were very different. Um, So at the end of uh, this this six-week session or whatever, we all do a presentation on our research. And I remember the day I presented, the person who presented before me was a guy who did uh, legal studies and he was native Hawaiian and he was talking, doing a presentation about Hawaiian uh, native land claims and the way Hawaii was sort of parceled out to non-native people and what this meant. Um, And it was done in like, you know, legal studies, right? Which is not my field. I had been researching um, Jane Johnston Schoolcraft, who was half Anishinaabe, she's a member of my tribe and half white. So her mother was Anishinabe. her father was English. And she lived from 18 she was born in 1800, died in 1842, Sault Saint. Marie, and she wrote poetry. She was a poet. She wrote in both Anishinabe and in English. And she married the U.S. Indian agent for Sault St. Marie, the first, you know, white American representative of power in the area. She married Henry Rose Schoolcraft, who made his career out of writing about her tribe. So he is sort of the first um, ethnologist, anthropologist to look at Anishinaabe culture and language. And he used Jane and her family as, a, um, as his sources. And Jane gets almost historically got zero credit. Um, so I did all this research into Jane herself and what she wrote and what her life was. And I presented like I want to tell her story on stage so this is going to be a play it's going to be a performance and it is from jane's point of view and it's using her writing and the way the world saw this woman Um, but it's also about erasure you know she is a woman who lived and wrote and had children die and died of addiction basically died of a broken heart sorry <laughs> you're upset. good you're good
0: you're good you're good this is your
1: reason this is a reason in sunset that so much of it was written because it's hard to talk about she wrote poetry that was her way of writing herself in into a world that was trying that was trying to erase her and she married and she loved um the man whose job was to disenfranchise her people mm-hmm. basically she loved him and um he initially loved her too i think but their marriage fell apart Okay, so you can tell this story on stage, right? And yeah. I go through, I do a presentation on what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. Didn't really do the play. And afterwards, this legal studies student is like, am you? <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, "He's like, you can tell, you, you can show what it felt like. Like, I can do all the legal scholarship stuff in the world about how we were screwed but you can show how it felt. That's what theater does. That's what performance and art can do. So that's kind of where I focus um, in my work, is showing how it feels or what it is. Um, I've still yet to produce the Jane Johnston Schoolcraft play. Um, I've done snippets of it here and there, um, but I've done other things, and I've been able to work on other things along the way. One of which was Sunset on the Longest Day, which I think worked better than anything I thought of with regards to Dane Johnson's Schoolcraft with her piece. So, yeah, I think art shows you how it felt. And too often people just look at Native people as history or as a a subject and not uh, people with feelings. How enraging, you know, being displaced and erased and fucked over, how enraging that is. And I think like, I think empathy, actually, I'm sorry, I'll get, I'll circle back because you you asked me kind of a specific question. I think that empathetic approach matters. It's like, you need to know how it felt or what Mm -hmm. it might feel like. And then sometimes you can understand it better. It's not just about you broke all the treaties. Um, You did, but you know, you took away our (laughs) land. You did, but think about what that might feel like, you know, the injustice of it and to still have to get up and live in this world every day and still not see yourself represented or acknowledged, um, what, you know, living in fear as the Supreme Court uh, rules on things that might jeopardize your children or your land or your rights. Um, So, yeah, I think art does that. Maybe better than anything else. If it's good. And if it's by natives. I mean...
0: (laughs) so. So, art, So for you, it's not representation for representation's sake, because there are surely there are people, oh, representation is its own end. But for you, it's more of a means to something greater.
1: It's both. Yeah. I mean, I get, uh, you know, any good. This is the thing we all like to we're all still little kids and we like to hear a good story, you know, Mm -hmm. So that never goes away. And that's good. That's what makes us human. When I teach uh, theater history, my uh, disclaimer at the beginning of the semester is, you know, we're going to... And teaching theater history, it's very hard to incorporate Native content into that because (laughs) there's so little of it. But, um, you know, Mm -hmm. there's other... I'm trying, you know, I need to try to represent, you know, women in this story that's usually very white and non-white people in theater history. But I say, you know, we're going to read plays that are going to upset you, you know, that are going to challenge your thinking and seem unjust. And fair warning you know there's gonna be things that distress you but this is art and we're artists and sometimes art deals with the ugly side of things as as its subject and one theory about art is that it's a way for us to uh engage with these things to imagine them or deal with them in a way that nobody gets hurt right it's not real it's art uh so right i think that's important so but any uh you know I do believe in, you know, native telling Native stories and getting that out there and supporting Native artists, but any good story that engages people, you know, that makes you feel something that tears you up, you know. Um, I just finished, yeah. we just finished watching the series The Bear last night, which is about, you know, a restaurant. Um, this Italian-American family running a restaurant. And, like, by the end of it, it's set in Chicago, so, like, there's lots of, you know, nostalgia there, because I've lived in Chicago for so long, but... Um, you know, it's a world that's pretty foreign to me. I don't know much about the restaurant world, but, um, you know, it's, it just tore me up at the end, um, which is good. Uh, it made me feel something. So it's a good
0: story. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I really I want to get to one of your specific projects, Sunset on the Longest yeah. Day. Uh, I drove out there. Uh, I was there. Um, and it was great. I want to say it was it was fucking awesome, by the way um it was really great something I noticed um because I, I want to ask your interpretation and what the thought process was so well I will actually have you talk about that first because if I talk about it it won't make any sense without context so can we talk about what that project was or is I suppose
1: yeah so that um the way this came up um the way this project evolved is Ruth K Burke who is a uh, faculty in the art department at ISU And she teaches video art. That's actually what she's doing at ISU. But she does, her practice as an artist is um, land art or um, land. She doesn't like the term landscape art. I guess there are some, you know, in her field, there's some problematic history with that. So, but uh, earthworks, or I think that's the term they don't like. But this is what she does. And she works with animal labor. And when she first told me animal labor, I'm like, what do you mean animal labor? And she's like, well, like horses and oxen, And you know and I start laughing. But she worked she has a pair of oxen, Clark and Sparky, and she uses them in creating these earthworks. And she's also done things that involve horse labor too. So she wanted to do a piece about land acknowledgement and uh, un sort of uh, indigenous plants and the prairie, the idea of the prairie. So she, I had done a presentation on campus about land acknowledgement at ISU, and she approached me afterwards and sort of said, "Like I want to do this thing. I have space at the Horticulture Center out on Rab Road, an acre of land to do with what I want, and I want to do a piece that is a living land acknowledgement. What does that look like, Native person? I want Native input." <laughs> so we we started meeting, and um, my back, you know, uh, my. Field is theater and performance, and my tribe is you know we're the Chippewa and Ojibwe, all one and the same. But um, I talked through our, like our tribal flag and the idea of the medicine wheel, and I said it should pro- whatever this thing is, it should probably be round. That is like you know very primal, and we have four medicine plants uh, in our sort of tradition. You know, sage, cedar. Sweetgrass and tobacco. And I think by that point, I had been out to the the horticulture center, and I could smell sweetgrass. So sweetgrass is just it just looks like grass. like it's really hard to identify on site because it's just there's nothing remarkable about it. But it has this beautiful smell. And in my tribe and a lot of traditions, you you cut it and braid it into braids and dry it, and you can burn it and you get the beautiful smell, or sometimes people just keep braids of sweetgrass around. Uh, But I knew it was growing out at the um, horticulture center. So I said, like, this piece, whatever it is, you know, it should incorporate maybe some of these traditional plants. But I don't know. I think you should check with, like, the Peoria, Miami, and Kickapoo tribe and see if they're the people that this was their land. So maybe what was holy to them, you know, or what sort of gardening practices or agricultural practices did they do? Because my tribe really didn't. Uh, We were hunters and gatherers primarily. so this conversation started there and I started talking about circles and maybe this could be a mound or a circular thing. And I said, well, you know, the, and then she was talking about like the, how the oxen could do this. Right. At one point I said, it would be cool if it were sort of like a circular mound, like a big donut where you could stand in the middle and then with, and not see the stuff around you, just see like earth and sky. Right. If it Mm -hmm. were just deep enough. So we kind of, you know, pondered that. And I said, well, you know, the first theater performance spaces were threshing floors. You know, it was grain threshing. It was this hard circular area where they would, either with animals or with people, like beat the grain, you know, into, you know, flour or whatever. I'm not not an agricultural person. But, but it's like that's the theory is sort of, you know, the ancient theaters were kind of agricultural spaces to begin with. So then Ruth is like, why don't you just do a performance? And I'm like, oh. Okay, so her her piece is called Domestic Rewilding. And what it is, or what it will be, is sort of a horseshoe shape. So it's a semicircle that's open to the east. And it's a mound. It'll be a sort of semicircular mound planted with um, native grasses. It's meant to favor pollinator species. Um, in the center, there may be... They're trying to have a sculpture by a native artist. She has somebody in mind. So it'll be this space um, out at Horticulture Center that is a living land acknowledgement. And then Ruth's goal, she has sort of like a five-year, I think, lease on this acre of land, is she wants to get the university to deed it back to, or seed it back, land back it to a tribe. Um, Probably that will not happen, but that's sort of the goal. So it's a living land acknowledgement. The performance piece I did, so she said, why don't you just do a performance? I'm like, okay so initially i think it was going to be we picked the summer solstice because that's significant in lots of ways it's the longest day of the year and i thought well what would this be and it's like well there should be a fire and there should be i thought like eight native people and the reason it was eight native people was i could think of eight native people that might that i know that might come out and do this so that was kind of the basis but um people standing at each of the cardinal directions, so north, south, east, west, and the northwest, southwest. And they're around this fire, and they're holding signs. And the signage, so they have a series of, um, they each have like a pad of paper with a single word on it, and together it spells out phrases. And the phrases, I wrote them out because these were things I have trouble saying. I get too upset and emotional. But, um, you know, it's like you took our land, you took our children, We are still here. So they go through a series of seven sign changes. So every 30 seconds, they pull off the top sheet and throw it in the fire. And in rehearsal, we discovered, I just thought you tear off the sheet, put the whole sheet in the fire. The problem is either it doesn't catch fire or it does and it starts to take off into the air. So uh, Ruth noticed, she's like, well, just crumple it up, you know, crumple the paper into a ball, throw it in the fire. And there's no way to do that without it seeming angry. You know, someone balls up a piece of paper. But it was like, man, that is effective. And it burns great. Yeah. Um, and I didn't give the performers any direct... It's like, just put it... Make a ball out of it. Put it in the fire. I didn't... I didn't ask them to act anything. Most of them were not performers to begin with. So they have these signs. And then at intervals, after seven sign changes, a person in the circle speaks. And they were each... Um, it starts with the East because in Ojibwe tradition, that's the beginning, right? Things start in the East and travel around. So it went, you know, East to South, around the circle that way, clockwise. Um, the first question was, who are your people? And the person that was standing in the East, they just there was no prompt for the question. So the audience didn't hear the question. They just got the answer. And that is because... <laughs> nobody asks indians anything so these are (laughs) we're answering the question y'all didn't ask and the person that had that question they could answer it any way they wanted to like who are your people if it means talking about your family great. if it's the history of your tribe that's great too many native people are uh connected to more than one tribe however you want to answer it so it was who are your people what happened to them where are they now these were the different questions: Do you know your language? Do you know your, your spiritual tradition, your your religion, your traditional religion? How do you feel about this? Uh, how do you know this history? And I thought, like, my answer to that is going to be different than the person that gave it, but um, you know, it was as an adult I had to learn this history. My family didn't really want to talk about it or didn't know it. So, how was it passed on to you? And then the final question was. Um, how do you feel about the future? So, um, and then the audience, yeah. the viewers for this, like I said, it's a bunch of people standing around a circle facing the fire. The signs are facing inwards and the performers were not mic and they also were not, and they're outdoors and they're not experienced, most of them are not experienced public speakers. So I was really worried about people being heard and the best direction I gave them was you're talking, direct this so that the person across the fire from you can hear it. And when the people showed up, you know, we had one rehearsal and performance, Um, the crowd has to move around the piece in order to read the signs and see what's going on. And then when people, when the performers were talking, really, they had to stop and kind of lean in to hear. And at the end of this, um, after we've gone around the circle, Ruth and her team of oxen started making their first transit of the space. Um, and they're wearing bells that came from Conestoga wagons, which were the sort of, you know, prairie schooner wagons that crossed, you know, the prairie in the first place. And we had um, William Buckholtz Allison, who's a traditional flute player. He played while people were speaking, so there was musical underscoring. It was great. Um, the action of the crowd, the people having to move around the piece, put you in it, put, put the spectators in it, and made them complicit. And I think it made the viewer and maybe you were a viewer. So maybe you could talk about this, but you were circling. It was like from the old Westerns where the Indians are circling the settlers, you know, attacking. That's what it felt like in rehearsal. I did. I had to walk around and it felt like I'm stalking the performers. It was very discomforting to me. And I knew what it was. And then when it was time to listen, everyone had to stop and like, listen. (laughs) So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. I've gotten some really good feedback from people on it. Um, so, yeah, does, does that cover what you were asking? Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, think, I thought that was really great. Something you said when you were doing kind of like the introduction to everything that night, remember you said you might not yeah. read or hear everything, and that's okay. Because that's implicitly what it means to be Indigenous, <laughs> to not be heard or seen whenever you want to be. Right? But here's the thing, is that's very clearly the point. Right? Um, Or part of it. Not the point, but part of it. But then I'm there, and I see people like, stepping into the circle. They're leaning in. They're kind of like, touching the performers. They kind of like, turn them. And I'm like, you're proving the fucking point. (laughs) This is why it's necessary. Which is, it's crazy to me that these people show up for indigenous people as to them, you know, another yeah. thing to be viewed, right, but they're not engaging with it, and it's funny, because I was talking about this to, to an indigenous person that that it, that was part of it, and they're like, that's not a bad, they said, well, it's not such a bad thing, because at least it proves yeah. their point. You know, and I was just, it blew me away, I was like, ha? you know, like, I was, you know, I wanted to read and see everything, but I was also partially recording it for someone involved, um, but... So I couldn't see or read everything. I'm okay with that. But some people were very, very incessant that they had to be, they had to yeah. see and well, hear everything. Yeah, you and know? I'm, my background is,
1: you know, directing in theater, you know, which is very, it, viewing a play, you know, we always talk about the liveness of theater is its beautiful thing, you know, its salient quality is that it's live, it's not a movie, it'll never be the same again. You had to be there, but it's very passive. I mean, you sit in a dark theater and you Mm -hmm. stare at people on a stage and you don't talk and you don't acknowledge the people around you. You don't really interact with anyone else. So this, and everything is directed, made um, accessible and clear and understandable and audible and all of that good stuff for you. So we're so used to, as an audience member, being pandered to like that. And this made you fucking work for it. Right, like you got to get up and move to read it. No, we're not going to turn mm-hmm. around. There was a printout of the text um, that was, uh, you know, I I did I did that.
0: Yeah. Well, that people had it in their hands, but right. they didn't look long enough yeah. at it to realize um, it's um, what it was there. What? I realized kind of
1: late in the game. It's like, well, if someone, you know, right, I needed to do that. So, um, or hearing the performers, and that was a real concern. I did try to use an amplifier. Like a voice, uh, like this awful voice amp mm-hmm. thing, that just did not work. Like let's just forget it. It's better to not hear some of it, but um, you know, it made you work to hear it and get it. I think that's important, and it made the audience part of it. You know, and everybody's experience of it is going to be different, and that's something to talk about. Um, how you felt, and if I've yeah. thought about, you know, could I do this sort of thing again somewhere else in a different context? And you know, there I I could, but it would not be definitely would not be the same. (laughs) Like, so what I liked about it was, yeah, it was all about the relationship of the uh, viewers and performers, the spectators and the performers, and everyone's experience of it was different and incomplete. But um, you got the gist of it. You didn't need to read every sign to figure it out. Um. There was some repetition going on and I didn't know. And I could not on the performance night, I couldn't hear what the performers were saying most of the time. Cause I was far enough away trying to cue things. So I'm still waiting to get a video of it. So that I <laughs> hear what they said. Um, but I loved it. I mm-hmm. We did one rehearsal on um, the night before and a lot of them, they didn't say much, you know, it's like they'd kind of get to their point where they're supposed to talk and they'd say a few things and then they go you know I'll have more tomorrow. They kind of had to think about it and then performance night man some of them went on and on which was great but um yeah I'm really proud of how it turned out.
0: I definitely got emotional at parts as well, you know. Some people involved are, yeah. for Led- were very stoic about their expressions yeah. and others, you know, there there were tears. Um, and I I myself am am, am not very emotional yeah, and that kind of stuff but i was good. like oh shit oh god i was <laughs> and i realized like it probably pro- oh.
1: you know i knew it would you know? provoke discomfort and unsettlement um in people who saw it and that was intentional i'm not um as an artist i mean i do like things that challenge people but in theater there's a sort of tradition of you know agitation propaganda theater Bertolt Brecht, the way that's his work is, I really like what he does. I love his plays, but I usually hate how they get produced. Um, But there is this very tendency to be in your face, Mm -hmm. aggressive, and what, even if I agree with the message, sometimes I shut down to that. It's like, oh, please, you know, you're an actor. (laughs) You know, like, Um, so there's something, uh, yeah, I don't always like real aggressive agitprop in your face kinds of things on stage and this is that but it also did it i think i threaded a needle where it you could feel how you wanted to feel about it yeah the the statements in the piece i wrote all of that i think if i did this again i would want to work with a community in writing the text but i wrote that and i struggled with it a lot um What do I want to say? And it has to fit in, like, a sentence that's no longer than eight words. And it can't be too repetitive. Um, So I had to kind of stick to things that you couldn't really argue with, right? You took our children. You took our language cut our hair and threw away our moccasins you know we yeah, there's no ambiguity about any of that stuff you know it's just historical yeah it's like you can't argue I've had people argue like well do you, you call it a genocide but it's like don't you don't want to debate me on that Like, <laughs> if you're debating whether it's a genocide it's probably a genocide right
0: it's one it, of those when you have to ask you know when you have to ask do I have to ask this you probably know the answer to your question yeah but I get it like so these, you're, you're to... appealing only to what is there is no interpretation about it. It is just what it is. Like this happened.
1: Yeah. It, it was factual. And, you know, I had some references to, uh, there's a part in the text where I talk about moments where Native people stood up and fought back and it made history or it got attention. Things like Standing Rock. And some of the things I referenced, you know, people were like, what, what is that? What is Oka? Uh, which was a standoff in uh, Montreal or near Montreal in the nineties between the Mohawks and in government. Was that the one about or the government? Was course. that the one about the golf course development? Yes. That's what, yes. Okay. Yep. that.
0: Okay.
1: And I didn't know much about it. I taught a film in my native studies class called beans. That is amazing. People should see it, but it is by the filmmaker Tracy deer. It came out, I think two years ago and it's about a 12 year old girl who's growing up in the midst of that. And part of it is the Oka crisis and what it was and how her family, you know, her parents were involved in it and what she witnessed. But the other half of it is just, you know, the stuff a teenage girl goes through, you know, falling in love for the first time or trying you know, trying alcohol, getting drunk for the first time, you know. Um, so it's this coming-of-age story, but it's amazing. Um, so, And what I like teaching about that movie is, you know, Teenage girl in this room. How many of you were a teenager? All of us. You know, we all fell in love the first time and got our heart broken and disobeyed our parents and wore something mom didn't like. And you know, right. so that's relatable. Right. And then there's this historical event. So um yeah, I mean I so someone said, Well, what is Oka? And it's like, go look it up if you don't know. Like if you are curious, there's this thing called the internet that will tell you, I don't need to explain it to you. Like you can work for that.
0: Right. Right.
1: Um, was, right. So there's a little, you know, anger at the audience on my part, but it comes out in a
0: subtle way. So. Yeah. Right. Um, so this is both a question and kind of a comment. So you, your word very much centers, obviously, Indigenous identity, Indigenous history and in stories, emphasis on plural. I appreciate it doesn't push you're not saying, oh, this is what it means to be indigenous. This isn't the indigenous history. It's rather these are these are various ways people are indigenous. These are their yeah. histories. Would you say that's fair? Is that you're you talked about it earlier? It's not a monolith, right? And even your you very oh, yeah. much emphasize that this is not there's no one way to be indigenous, but all these these indigenous people happen to have something in common, and that's a deep-seated trauma of some kind. But within it, they still express it and relate to it differently. Is that fair to to Yeah,
1: to absolutely that way? Yeah, I um sometimes when I'm when I realize I'm sounding like I'm speaking for all Native Americans, it's like okay, the only Indian I'm speaking for is this one. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what I think and feel and see. Um so yeah, there is like I said there are 500 and some unique native cultures on this continent in this country. Um and then there are all kinds of ways to be, to be Native. Um, and the experience of people who are raised in their community, on a reservation, in their culture, you know, deeply enmeshed, versus um, someone like me who wasn't, you know, was not unaware of Native heritage, was not completely disconnected from it. Um, I'm the first generation of my family to not be, of that side of the family, to not be born in Sault Ste. Marie. My family goes back at least seven generations that we can trace in the same town, in the same space. Um, And Sault Ste. Marie is uh, one of, it's in the Ojibwe migration story, which is like sort of a foundational story of our tribe. Um, It's the fifth stopping place on migration. So our tribe originally, pre-contact, started on the East Coast, sort of maybe Mm -hmm. in like Nova Scotia, and received a prophecy that said you have to move. People are coming and they'll destroy you if you stay here. So your people have to move journey to where the food grows on the water. And so this was a migration that probably took 500 years and it happened, started before Columbus arrived. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was going up the St. Lawrence waterway. So Niagara Falls is a place where our people stopped and settled for a while. And the area near Detroit is another one. Um, so Sault Ste. Marie, the rapids at Sault Ste. Marie were the fifth stopping place where we settled for a while and then journey, you know, some of us obviously stayed, but the journey ends at Madeline Island, um, the West end of, uh, Lake Superior and the food that grows on the water is wild rice, which is sort of a foundational part of traditional diet. Um, so yeah, we go way back. Um, and like I said, the migration story—it is a story, um, but it is history, and it's fact too. So, um, yeah, I mean, telling these stories, I think, matters. And yeah, I'm sorry, I feel like I drifted way off what you <laughs>
0: initially asked. Oh no, you're no, you're good, you're good. But
1: you know, there is not one way to be native, um, and everybody is native enough. And I referenced earlier, there is a lot of identity policing that goes on. Um, I've encountered this at ISU, um, honestly, with when Tribe was founded um, just a few years ago. Tribe is the Native American student organization that started at ISU, I think, 2020, uh, maybe 2021. Anyway, um, initially... There were some faculty who were, and I'm an advisor for Tribe, along with Angela Haas, Dr. Angela Haas, who is professor of English and uh, Eastern Band Cherokee. We are the sum total of Native faculty at ISU at the moment. There's also another professor, Dr. Ellis Hurd, um, in the education department, who is Masclero um, Apache, and he was part of the piece as well. Um, so there's three, which is good. Not enough, but... Uh, Anyway, when we were starting Tribe, uh, there was some talk among non-Native faculty who were sort of acting in an advisory capacity like, well, we don't – you know, it should just be limited to Native people and tribal members and, uh, you know – and I had to stop them and Angela did too. It's like, we'll let the, st- the students of Tribe decide who can be in Tribe because not everybody who is Indian is a member of a tribe, is enrolled. Right. Um, there are a lot of barriers to that because the record-keeping was – Tribal membership usually depends on birth records and census and other sorts of data that are kept by white people and Mm -hmm. have been designed over time to disenfranchise us. Um, So, like, people who are Indian, there's no, like, litmus test for Indianness to be in tribe. I think that's important. There's all kinds of ways. Everyone is Indian enough. And certainly allies, you know. College is a time where um, a lot of people who heard the, you know, Grandma was a Cherokee princess story in their family, um, start to explore that, you know, of, well, is that true, and what does that mean? And it is sort of shorthand for a joke. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, certainly her story, um, I never wanted to condemn her for that, because it's like, most people, that's all they have, are stories. That's how it gets handed down. You don't always have records. And... It's real hard to explain this to non-native people. Um, I never heard other natives condemn Elizabeth. Well, there's one Who's um, <laughs> made it her career to out pretendians. Um, oh right, yeah, he's not too reputable. Um, but otherwise, I never heard a native person condemn Elizabeth Warren for thinking she's and she, she had a uh, you know ancestry test. I mean, there was Native heritage there, but. You know, there is the idea of what community claims you and what community you claim. And for some people that link has been broken. And I, mean, I don't think it's I don't think you can fault people for that. You know, I can't control what my grandparents, great grandparents, my ancestors did or why they did it. I had the reasons to maybe yeah disavow being native.
0: So yeah. I mean I, I know indigenous people. One in particular I won't name, went to school. I think he was like middle school, like really young and was like, well, where they were talking about your family history, you know, just some activity they did with kids. He's like, well, I'm indigenous or maybe he said I'm native. And the teacher's like, no, you're not. All the Indians are dead. Yeah. Right. And they're just like, at every once in a while you have to be like, I don't blame people for not being so outward about their identity or their family having not been outward and suppressed it. Cause what is the, how the experience of when it, when you come out as indigenous or you're known to be indigenous, like you talked about the boarding school system, the social
1: yeah.
0: biases against you, whether that's, oh, you're a dirt, you know, any insult that could be said or the tokenization of can I touch your hair, which I have seen happen to my indigenous friends of the, <laughs> the fetishization Why? of. I don't them. have hair anyone's ever wanted to touch. Like,
1: I wish I had that hair. I don't have that hair, so... I got the wispy French hair. You know, we're a mix of uh, French and Anishinaabe. So, yeah, I got the bad Mm -hmm. French hair in the family. (laughs) So, yes, exactly. And, you know, um, I grew up in Michigan. I went, grew up in Muskegon, Michigan, high school with a native mascot. But um, in recent years, you know, over you reconnect with people from Facebook as you get, or, you know, from high school over Facebook social media as you get older. I found out, like, I started posting things on Facebook about being native. I never denied it in high school, but I never identified that way either. And why would I? Um, but, like, two other people I went to high school with and was pretty good friends with, they're like, oh, yeah, we're Odawa. And, you know, uh, another was Potawatomi. None of us knew that about each other. And it probably yeah. would not have been cool, you know. Um, one of the women that uh, said, you know, when I started to post things about um, my tribe, she's like, "Yeah, we're, you know, we're Odawa, we're on the Durant roll too," and she was, you know, the one of the like prettiest, most popular, you know, girls in in all through school, you know, kind of. Um, and I don't know in high school if she would have been forward about saying I'm, you know, has been proud of that. Because you know you're trying right. so hard to fit in, you know, mm-hmm. you're not gonna... and it's just one other way you could stick. Yeah, in, it's like, you know? oh yeah, and
0: be Indian too. So, like... right, right. Uh, I want to say earlier you're talking about the the oh the the migration story, and you're like that's both. Myth- yeah, I can't remember the term. You it's both story and true. Right. It's history and myth, or it's or or whatever yeah. term you want to use. That reminds me, I'll self plug the podcast. Okay. Right here. Back in November of last year, we did an interview with Dr. Paulette Steves, who is a cree Métis woman from Canada, and she wrote a book called The Indigenous Paleolithic of the Western Hemisphere, and she talks about how so many of these stories, and this is only part of the overall book, but how often these stories are important to someone's identity, and that when these things are rationalized by Western anthropology, they're shoved down the road like, oh, it's just a story, it's ignorant people, you know, it's a bunch of myth. Right. How impactful that is on a community and that when indigenous people are raised with those stories being told, like all the pathologies people think of when they think of indigenous people, alcoholism, suicide rates. Right. All of those, all of that stuff tends to be decreased. When people see themselves in their stories of their people, those, those, those social problems fade away. Right. Right, and so when you're talking about artwork and the importance of art, like your stories, like even just someone's own tribal or clan or whatever stories, how important that is. And so that just really reminded me because we we did talk about that the social importance of having those stories.
1: Yeah, um, my I I think I said earlier I just went to the um my my tribe had its 50th anniversary. Uh, grand assembly is what they call it, but I mean it's their powwow, which they do every year, but it was a bigger deal because it's fiftieth year, and it was my first time going to it um i have I don't have any family left at Sault saint Marie. I don't think I've been there in twenty years in that town um and it's you know like an, it was a ten hour drive from here to get there, so that's one reason uh, we don't go much, but um I went and it was really worth it, but to see how much it has the the reservation and the community has changed um, is really powerful. They now have a K through K-8 school, um, you know, teaching the language. The language is being revived. Um, but when I was a kid, you know, where the Indians lived out on Shunk Road was awful. You know, it was a slum. It was a bunch of shacks and trailers. Um, it was terrible. And now it's it's very nice. You know, they have a school and a community center and a healthcare center and a casino uh, that we stayed in, (laughs) but um, it was really heartening to see that. And that now it's, you can be proud of being native and my grandfather and his family couldn't, you know, they had to hide it. So that feels good. Um, And part of the piece I did uh, was about listening and being heard. And some of the people who performed in it said that was, The best part was being able to say these things in a form where people were listening. To be asked those questions, Mm -hmm. you know, tell us about your people. Often um, people don't, either they don't know or they don't feel like they can ask or they don't want to appear, you know, they don't want to seem dumb or ignorant or say the wrong thing but uh that's how you learn is ask questions and i've never been insulted when someone's asked me you know tell me more about this part of your identity
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that's really great um that sounded like really fake when i said it like that i'm trying to keep (laughs) i'm just trying to keep all my questions in order here (laughs) it's all right um So I have one last question for you. And this is one I was reading. It was a Redbird Scholar interview from last year. I think it's actually one in which you're talking about uh, reservation dogs. Um, And you said social media is democratic. It gives people agency to tell their own stories. I really wanted to pick your brain on that because I actually kind of disagree with that because I find that social media platforms with Mm, their algorithms, their – they're run by, you know, they're run by private interest that can, as we see now, like the most, I know everyone wants to harp on it, but Twitter with Elon Musk, right? Like he's, I'm going to reestablish free speech, but now like sis is a word that can get you like banned on the fucking app. I have never, you know? I've
1: never done Twitter. I'm just like, I'm not getting in that mess. Fair like, enough.
0: <laughs> so I was wondering, could you elaborate on what you mean by like, it's democratic or it gives people agency? I'm, I'm really curious on how you conceptualize oh. the notion of social media.
1: Okay. What I'm referring to there, because I, I hear you that um, it is not democratic in some ways. It's, uh, you can create, right? Um, mm. And I'm kind of going back to Reservation Dogs, the 1491s, a lot of uh, native content, like on TikTok, etc., is it's democratic for the creator in some ways, the person making it, in that you just need a phone, right? You don't, um, you don't have to have a camera or a studio or a whole lot to make the art. Mm. Um, so in that way to, to, to put your story out there now to get it heard is another thing, right. And that is the realm of, you know, billionaires controlling algorithms, but, um, you can put it out there and there are like, obviously like any other population, there are native, you know, circles on Facebook and TikTok, etc. Um, so in that way, it is democratizing and the way social media, um, has been, utilized by native people to learn language and share culture is really important because a lot of native, you know, reservations or communities are very isolated from one another and urban native populations like Chicago, you know, that was created by the relocation policy of it's people from many different tribes sort of dumped in the city and left to their own devices. You know, they were promised one thing by the government and not given much. So the native community, um, In Chicago, there is a cohesion to it, but they are people from many different tribes. And so if they want, you know, if someone is Menominee and they want to learn their language, they can connect to someone who is on the Menominee reservation and knows the language, you know. So in that way, in that way, it's it's democratizing. You have some agency as far as what you can do. But yes, I
0: totally hear (laughs) it is not democratic in lots of other ways. Gotcha. Yeah, I just, that stood out to me because I'm, you know, like I run this, this uh, podcast and I'm, and I'm online in certain spaces and I've just published right. a zine. And I've been kind of using online, oh. but it's like, it's also weird for me because it's like, as someone who's really critical of technology, so that there's a lot of tension in doing this kind of thing. Because even people that I'm like, oh yeah, I run a podcast that's anti-tech and they look at me and they're like, Come <laughs> again? <laughs> they're like, hold on, I need you to run that by me one more time. And I'm like, uh, you know, I mean, the thing is how many, and maybe you would agree with this. I'm really interested from a, the perspective of, of, of theater. But the, the thing is, is that we've been so atomized by social media or that even before social media, people are moving into the insular form, right? Like more and more we've been atomized and that social media is kind of, it's a lot harder to just go out and talk to people or sit, you know, sit down in public space and soapbox about stuff. You know what I mean? It's and even yeah. illegal in some cases, right? We're shamed. So it's like, in some sense, it's been taken away and I'm trying to, with like my printed zine to do that work. So I'm curious, what is it, you know, do you see any relationship between that and some of the theater work or even particularly being indigenous, this idea of like people being atomized and having no option but social media to kind of talk about their experiences?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, is from the indigenous perspective, um, I, what I, the, a positive thing about social media is that it has helped connect communities, like, and Facebook, you know, which is sort of like the old school uh, of social media, is really popular, you know, because a lot of it's a lot of older people, you know, in their communities or who are cut off from their communities reconnecting or conversing over that. So that's a positive. Um, it's, and I guess what I'm looking at in in that are things like for me, like learning. The language or hearing more about the culture or things you know, issues that are affecting specific communities. In the um, with my tribe, we are fighting um, an Enbridge pipeline that goes under the Straits of Mackinac, it's called Line Five Enbridge Line Five, mm-hmm. and it is a 70 year old pipeline that was only supposed to last 50 years and it's carrying oil under the Great Lakes. And if it ruptures, um, you know the Great Lakes watershed is contaminated for good. And so like we're fighting that. And it's like good to hear about that or to be able to, you know, sign on to things or endorse or spread, you know, the word about that. So, so that's a good thing with, um with theater. Yes, there is a, and just with teaching, you know, people are so distracted with and disengaged mm-hmm. with social media, with their phones. Um, and me too, you know, it, I kind of resisted it for a long time, but, um, you know, I'm as bad as anyone else. So it is hard to get people to engage. Um, And maybe you see this, you know, teaching also. Um, But I don't always think it's a bad thing. I think sometimes I've seen theater productions that are trying to, like, work social media into the production. And I kind of hate that. Honestly, I've seen, <laughs> um, it never works all that well, or it's just annoying. Um, it never works as well as you think it will, and it's kind of annoying. And not everybody they got a dream, you know—they got a dream. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and not everybody. I mean, when I've seen this in use, not everybody has a good phone or good connectivity right. or is as adept, or you know, like so. It's awful in some ways. So I, I don't love that, but I don't condemn it. I mean, I've. I taught a course in devising theater, and this is another thing I do. A lot of my work is sort of devised, meaning it's not scripted, it's sort of creating it in conjunction with the performer, with the performers have a hand in the creation of the work. So I taught a class in this, and the first time I did it was the first year we were totally online for the pandemic. So it was gonna be a live class and then it was online. So it's really hard to teach live performance over Zoom. But we did it and we created a piece, um, a final project in the class completely over Zoom that it was a YouTube video was the end result. But it was all about life online in Zoom in the pandemic and the sense of disruption and disconnection. You know, it it critiqued its own medium, which I kind of liked. So, you know, I'm not anti-social media. I think there's definitely ways to engage with it in a, you know, in performance. As a performance, but I like live stuff. You know, I like live human presence. Look me in the eyes.
0: There's something about being in the space, right? right? Being there. Yes, you're there when it
1: happens, and your physical presence matters. Your attention. Yeah, and with sunset on the longest day, that was one of the things is you had to be there and you had to be in it, and your your body and your presence and what you focused on and the noises you made or whatever were mattered and impacted. So
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, i mean that's i think that's a really good way to put it. um, I find there's this a connection there's a there is a weird loss of the live face to face I mean that just comes with some of my beliefs as they are right but like in theater right like i don't get to go enough to and i'm not into sports so i'm not going up mm-hmm. to watching sports and there's not i'm not as into theater i was a little bit more when i was in high school and early college uh i like to go see live yeah. music right but it's like there's something about being in those spaces right. with other people who are there maybe for the well, same like reason or maybe because music, oh it's my you know girlfriend with live music
1: if especially if it's like an artist you like and music you're familiar with it never it never sounds the same, and often it doesn't sound that good live. You know, like, it sounds much better on the record, <laughs> on the recording. But, you know, being there matters. Um, of all the concert, mm-hmm. I mean, I've never been a huge concert goer, but, like, I couldn't tell you what they played. <laughs> like, did they play the song? I don't really remember. Right. I remember being in the crowd and, you know, the noise and, you know, the experience, and that's what was awesome about it. Um, so, yeah, the liveness. Is a thing. I'm so heartened that you're doing a zine, that <laughs> you're
0: going back to print. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, no, I, there are so many zines I get, and they're saying they're like, and I'm not shitting on other people that do it, but they do like the, uh, oh, the program, like the layout programs. But mine's the typical okay. like cut and the old style cut and paste. This is... um, and by the way, uh, it's it's okay. so good. It's I've sold like something like 70 of them okay. now. I think. And some of them are, like, international orders, like Ireland, New Zealand, Canada. It's been fucking awesome, which shows me people are still interested in that kind of, like, physical, you know. We, I'm in my
1: 50s, uh, and so my... I remember a world before, everyone had a phone in their hand all the time, <laughs> and... You know, people my age, I think, miss that sometimes where you had to talk to somebody or you had to call someone on the phone to get, I'm sorry, my phone is pinging.
0: Wow, wow. What timing?
1: (laughs) Um, You know, uh, you had to have a conversation to get something done. And now Mm. so much as I'll send you a text or I'll send you an email. It's like, yeah, and nobody will read that. And then we'll text and then we'll wonder why it didn't happen. Um, So, yeah, there's something kind of analog about the world that the human presence, even if it's over the phone you know, that I miss. Mm-hmm. So I think in the zine thing, I mean, that was so big when I was in college as an undergrad. Um, yeah, it's cool. I'm glad you're doing it.
0: Yeah, and I, I appreciate that. And I, I want to say, before we wrap this up, I'll have to check it out.
1: I will try to get a hold of it. Yeah. What is what's the, plug, your, plug your zine. What's it called? It's
0: called Plastic in Utero, a journal of anti-civ anarchy reborn from the compost of wasteland modernity. It's a long one. It's a long name. Wow. Okay.
1: I'll look it up.
0: Oh, I will. Well, you won't find it online. I will get you a copy. Don't you worry. Oh, okay. Great. I I will get you one. Which is why, check the description below for my P.O. Box, and I will send you one if you send me $3 in the mail. Uh, (laughs) That's my plug. But let me say this. I want to say I appreciate the work that you do. Um, I've been to several of 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 your productions, or whether or not you've written it, but you've produced it or something to that nature. I've been there and it's always been, I can tell you're just so passionate about the work and it, you know, you're not there, you know, no one's a professor for the money. Right. Uh, (laughs) uh, But I can tell you're there because you're interested in the work and the people, you inspire something in the people that show up because there's always an emotional reaction among the people and people are interested in having conversations with you. Cause every time I want to talk to you after everyone wants to talk to you, I'm like, well, shit, I can't get to them. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, and you know, this was nice usually talking right after a performance and I remember um talking to you after um sunset and I think after the other show you're talking about. It's like yeah, I'm just exhausted. Like yeah. Sunset, you know, we had one perform one rehearsal and one performance. That's just But I have been living with that thing for months and by the t- and you're so worried, you know, it's so stressful, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to make sure the show goes right. And when you're the director or creator of it, you ha- once it starts, you have no control. Not really. You know, you just hope they do, that everything goes like you wanted it to. So it's, you know, it's like taking your hands off the wheel of a speeding bus. Like, okay, hope this goes well can't do much about it so yeah i always everyone always wants to talk and it's like i'm just feel like i'm a babbling idiot at that point
0: yeah that's why when i was like hey because that's when i was like, you should come (laughs) on the podcast you look to me i could see it in your eyes you're like you're what (laughs) like i just there was something not quite it wasn't the same dr eplett that was there at the beginning of the production (laughs) yeah
1: that person was exhausted so
0: that's um, how that's how yeah. i feel after recording like one episode of this my brain is just like fried because you have to do so you know there's so much attention back and forth you yeah. know which right. is great because exactly. now i get to record. i get to record another one after this in approximately two hours and it'll be great uh but you know but yeah all- i mean this is the thing with live interaction
1: you know um even though we're on you know the dreaded social media but we're having a conversation in real time mm-hmm. at least for us i mean everyone else is listening later mm-hmm. um yeah it it exhausts you, but it also feeds you, you know, Mm -hmm. that's the thing with live theater or music or just live human interaction. And we, we get so far away from that. We've gotten so far away from that with social media, but also the pandemic, you know, um, as a teacher being over zoom, teaching over zoom and then coming back live, um, you really see students, you know, struggle sometimes to like, they don't know how to be present right um in a class specifically um so you kind of have to teach them and i will sometimes in the midst of a class just sort of reference somebody you know by name or call on someone and and they're you know freaked out by it And it's like i'm just you know you seem to be looking at me so i just said your name and you know you're here i see you so
0: my favorite thing is uh as a as an english teacher um Being like, if I can tell no one's listening, they're all on, you know, I'm sounding like a boomer for this, but if they're on TikTok or something and I'm like, let me get their attention, I'll just say random shit. I'll just say, you know, uh, the English language is fake. I've been lying to you and you've been pranked. And like a kid will look up and be like, what did you say? (laughs) Oh, and it it just or some stupid shit like that. So it's I've been lying to you this entire semester. It's made up. There is no such thing as grammar, which you can argue there technically isn't. But, you know, um your grade actually isn't worth anything.
1: I also, though, um, I used to be a real hard ass in class about put your phones away. I mean, I pre pandemic, I was like that. And then afterwards, once we, you know, came back to, you know, normal, whatever that is, but I just gave up on that. It's like, if you want to be on your phone, I'm just glad you're in the room, you know? And, and I realized like, um, in college, right. I, uh, and I was teaching like upper-level college courses that I'm referring to. I might not do this with freshmen, but um, a lot of my students were like fact-checking me or looking stuff up, or I'd reference some play or film, and they'd want to know more about it. It's like, well, that's good, like that's productive right. distraction, <laughs> like right. So I kind of let them do it, and then it's also um, you become I've become much more aware of um, people's anxieties and things, you know, social anxiety, I think, is a much bigger thing with college students now. That if it makes them feel better to, you know, have their phone in their hand and be scrolling through whatever they're scrolling through, okay, you know, I'm not going to fight it. It's, they're here. (laughs) And that's half the battle. So, Mm -hmm. so I, I think sometimes it's a comfort, you know, it's, it's another channel for people to be in. And we're so used to multitasking and being on several things at once that maybe some people operate better that way i don't know
0: mm-hmm. for me i you know i i i have tension with that because i have a thing where i can collect phones if i want to mm-hmm. i try not to because i'm like i don't want to be an authoritarian asshole about it but sometimes it's like yeah. so i sometimes like the i mean i've had kids uh students rather i should say no, you know i, know, I, I appreciate yeah I, I appreciate that you that you talked about this you know i've actually because we did a a, a a lesson this is a total fucking off the rails from everything else but this is okay um i had a we uh, we had a unit on media bias and part of that was how much time do you spend on your phone and yeah. the, the phone tracker i spend on average maybe three hours on my phone a day mm-hmm. um like total uh Which is apparently far below the average, which is really scary to think about. But then I have some of my students who are seniors, they're like, oh, five, seven, eight, ten hours. And I'm like, holy fuck, that's crazy. Yeah, Um, I mean, can we talk about that?
1: It's because I mean, it's easy to do, you know, every It's like, oh, I just, even if it's like, I need to know what time it is. And it's like, oh, look, I have a message.
0: And oh, you know. And you get pulled in. And then that's the thing with the algorithms I was talking about earlier is they're built to do that to you. Yeah. They're built to do that because they want your data and they're selling it. So the more you engage with it, the more you feed into it, you know, and it's <laughs> not, it's, yeah, it's not healthy. But like a lot of my students are like, I appreciate you talked about this. I I've, I deleted this app, usually yeah. TikTok. I know, I know or oh I've reduced my phone use by this much or cuz I when I'm with them like I put my phone like it's gone like I hide it in my desk and if I'm if I don't want to do anything if I don't want to do anything and they're working or we're just chilling in class you know I'm handwriting something cuz I'm usually plotting episodes or essay ideas at work yeah. or zines uh, printing zines off at work it's fun <laughs> <laughs> um, eh, they don't pay me enough so you know I'm just taking what I uh, what what I deserve yeah. or like you know or I'm reading which is to me in modeling behaviors i want to see people engaged in yeah exactly you know it's great but that's just me that's just me so i guess we can we can round it out here because that was a fucking tangent which i didn't insist but i appreciate it i really
1: you'll i i I expect you'll edit this into some more (laughs) coherent form or
0: oh it's all up it's up to the gods which by that i mean is my editor who is awesome. Okay, And he, he is the unsung hero of this show. So I'll ask this before we round off. Is there any way for people to support you or the work that you do or the work of other people around you?
1: Um, I, well, the, okay, Ruth K. Burke's piece, domestic, rewild, domestic Rewilding, is, this is the land art piece out at the um, ISU Horticulture Center on Rab Road, across from the Corn Crib. You can go and see that. It'll be under construction and in in progress for a couple of years. Um, she also, you can volunteer um, at the Horticulture Center to, to work on it or uh, with Ruth directly, um, Ruth K. Burke. If you look her up online, you'll find a website. I don't actually have a website of my own, and that's one thing I've been meaning to do. But, um, yeah, I mean, just stay tuned, I guess. <laughs> i don't have uh,
0: right we're being tough on our toes here yeah
1: i i don't have like a upcoming performance project specifically um so mm-hmm. yeah i'm i'm also like i said a theater history scholar and i'm supposed to be writing a chapter on a um female theater maker from chicago uh in chicago history and that's due in november so i need to do that um get to work on that but that's a that'll be a reading thing not a performance and it's not about indigenous stuff so yeah just stay tuned Mm -hmm. i mean i don't have like i said a specific thing coming up but hopefully i will i'd like to do something like sunset on the longest day again in you know and work with people on writing the text for it using um sort of the template i made and i think um the template i mean it wouldn't have to be indigenous right i think you could do this with right any sort of community it could be really powerful um in lots of different ways because you could develop a text and then perform it and i think the moving audience idea has a lot of interesting applications or potential so but i don't have anything specific coming up so i'm sorry stay tuned
0: oh, no you're good you're good you're keeping us on our toes yeah, i see too Usually, I mean it's interesting you're one of our more um unique guests insofar with the people who tend to bring on are like political I will say activists in a broad sense, though most of them probably wouldn't use that term. That's uh, that's your focus and that's great. Um. Yeah. But it's still interesting because you brought a different perspective. Like the way you've engaged with the podcast is different than most oh. people because they come in like their experience with this type of like conversation yeah. or like audience, but you bring a very different perspective you know what i mean and i find i appreciate that a lot and i hope the audience this does as well really
1: well i i did somebody's this is really the first podcast i've done um i did one it was i don't know if it i don't know whatever happened to it i never saw it um i'm not sure the person who was doing it knew what they were doing but uh yeah this was really fun and or i've done you know i did some press and radio interviews related to um sunset on the longest day but uh yeah this was fun this was really engaging and focused and you you and i'm you know i'm not the i guess the thing with doing you know like a radio interview about an upcoming show is you're promoting something really specific and the thing is over with now so i can just talk about what it was and how it played out and that's that's cool i um as a director you don't often get to do that and then to think about it i mean you've pushed me to think about it um Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say political, well, yeah, I mean, it is sort of the political activist end of it, which I don't always go about quite as consciously. Um, I didn't have a, you know, specific uh, political end in mind with doing the piece. It was just like, y'all need to hear this. You can do with it what you want to do as, you know, the spectator, but you need to know this. You need to hear this. You need to feel this. And then maybe you'll act mm-hmm. differently or
0: do differently. You hope so, right? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, it's not just art on its own. It's art with the purpose of inspiring. Yeah, and else, actually, right? you want to here's, here's the
1: political end of it. With um, traditional theater, I've been teaching in, you know, ISU's theater program, uh, mm-hmm. often, and I've been thinking about this more in the broader context of, like, theater today, um, is theater, and there was just an article out about this sort of critiquing old school 20th century theater, you know, you sit there and you watch this play we wrote and shut up and, you know, but um, art needs to engage people and it needs to change and it needs to do that um, in a, in a different way, you know, um, after the, with George Floyd, the joke in theater circles was, well, what Shakespeare do we do that addresses, you know, institutionalized racism? You know, I mean, we go back to, and Mm -hmm. then, you know, we'll do the same old Shakespeare again and maybe add some props or do something. We'll set it in, you know, some dystopian future. It's like that he wasn't writing about this stuff. You know, he wasn't speaking to this audience. So we need to do different things and engage people differently. So right. I've been thinking about that a lot. Right. And you made me think, rethink through that devising class where we had to be online and create a final piece that mm-hmm. was very different. And that really stretched me. Um, that was a good exercise to have to do. You know, this is the circumstances we're in. How do we make art out of this?
0: So that was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I pre. I mean, the po- I always hope the podcast is yeah. like a two way street, right? It can not only does it bring something content, right, but it gets me thinking about things. And I would hope it. You know, I ask questions that engages yeah. the desk. Oh, no, you totally. Yeah, you light. do
1: totally. They were really good. And you did some homework. I mean, I love how yeah. you're. Well, um, you quote an interview i did with redbird scholar and it's like yeah i don't i kind of remember saying that but um yeah and you made me think about it differently because <laughs> yeah social media is not democratic
0: <laughs> so yeah i do do my homework i spend more time researching guests on this than i <laughs> but I do deep dives sometimes so i can ask does it's especially if someone does we've had some people on that have that are popular-esque in our spaces. So I'm like, I don't want to just ask the same question they've been asked on every other platform. (laughs) You know what I mean? I want it to be like useful fucking questions. well,
1: good. Um, This was great. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Yeah, so this has been Uncivilized with Dr. Shannon Eplett. Thank you for listening. Great.